Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we're continuing our series from the Gospel of Matthew, Pastor Tim takes us on a journey to Caesarea Philippi and asks the question, why did God bring me here? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I haven't met you, my name's Tim. Uh, I've been here for about a decade now. So um, if you've been around for a while, you've probably met me. Um, but if you haven't, I would love, I would love to meet you. Um, you can either stick around after the service. Another way, um, they mentioned it earlier, but if you fill out that guest card, it is really helpful. It allows me to, to reach out. And then um, if you want to have a conversation in person, we don't require it. Um, but if you want to, we'd love to, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee or something with you and get to know you a little bit. Um, but we've been in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We, we took 2022, kind of coming out of uh, all of the things that kind of were revealed in COVID. Um, we, we said, okay, what should we be doing for this next ministry season? What are the things we should be studying? And uh, to a person, every single one of our pastors said, we really just, we should just take a year and just talk about Jesus and try to model, um, try, to, try to evaluate how did Jesus live his life? What were his ways? Um, not just what were his words and his works, but what were his ways? How did he live? Um, and let's just take a year and let's, let's work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we have been doing that. We started uh, in December of last year. We're now kind of halfway into Matthew. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, just to kind of catch you up, if, you, if this summer you've, if you're like most Michigan people and have taken advantage of summer and you've been here and there and, and everywhere else, um, we spent the month of June so all of June, just looking at Matthew chapter 13, um, which is a series of parables, short stories that Jesus, um, he tells these stories to talk about this idea that is central to his ministry. It's the main sermon Jesus teaches, uh, and it's this idea of the kingdom of God. Um, for Jesus, uh, and, we, and we made this point, I think, week after week after week, that Jesus didn't come to just start a new religion, uh, he didn't just come to talk about where, where we're going after we, after we live, like where we go and we die. Um, that's way too small. He talked about that, but that's way too small. What Jesus came to do in the world was to launch a whole new worldview. Um, the Apostle Paul refers to it as the new humanity. Um, Jesus unleashed into the world a whole new understanding. So yes, he talks about where we go after we die uh, a little bit, but he's far more concerned with talking about things like gossip and anxiety and worry, and how do we forgive people when they hurt us? Um, how, do we, uh, how do we love others, especially those we disagree with, especially our enemies? Um, Jesus spends a lot of his time talking about how do we actually live this life? Um, and then trusting that uh, if, if he's with us in this life, he'll be with us into eternity. But how do we live this life? Uh, the full spectrum of our humanity. Uh, and he referred to that, this, this new way of living, as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So that was uh, June. And then we noticed a turn in the story. A couple weeks ago, we explored the turn. Um, it, essentially, up until this point in the story, Jesus has been popular with the hurting people of the world. Uh, he's not always been popular with the religious leaders. Um, they have questions. Uh, the Pharisees, especially uh, this group of religious, kind of orthodox religious Jews, have some questions for Jesus. But everyone else kind of, they, they keep, they're drawn to him. But then uh, we notice there's a turn, and all of a sudden, um, so it starts with the Pharisees not understanding those parables. Then 
Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He spends the majority of his life, these are his neighbors and his friends. Uh, if you read the story closely, his sisters still live in this town, but they are offended by him. They want nothing to do with him. And then the very next story, uh, Jesus receives word that his best friend and cousin, a guy named John, we call him John the Baptist, um, he's been killed by uh, the king uh, of this region, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Uh, he's had him beheaded. And so it's, it goes from like popularity and all of a sudden Jesus, like Jesus's faith journey, um, it gets pretty hard and pretty dark. Uh, then uh, if you were with us last week, uh, Jared walked us through the story right after this. Um, the story's right after this. Uh, you begin like a peek behind the curtain of the world of Jesus. Because all of a sudden now we realize that there's at least 5,000 people who are hungry. And then we meet a mom whose daughter is dying and then we meet another 4,000 people who are hungry. The world of Jesus is filled with lots of pain. Um, and we've explored some of those reasons for that pain. But there's all kinds of pain. And where are the, the people who are supposed to deal with the pain? I mean, Jesus says, I've, essentially, his, his early portion of his ministry was, I'm here to wake up the religious leaders to call the nation of Israel back so that, you, that we, they can be a blessing to take care of the problems of the world. Um, the, the Jewish people are referred to as God's chosen people, not because they are like, chosen for privilege, but they are chosen for a purpose. They were supposed to be the ones who, who healed the problems of the world. And what are the religious leaders concerned with after the, the, the feeding and a starving child and then another, or a sick child and then another feeding? Well, Jesus gives the food to the disciples to give to the 4,000 people, and they see it happening and they say, here's their question. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? Like, talk about missing the point, right? Like, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Like, you just fed, like, instead of thinking about why are there so many hungry people in our world, instead they're saying, well, you didn't do it right. We, you, you broke the traditions. Our, we, have the, we have the rules. I would agree washing hands is a good rule, but it misses the point in this, in this case. Uh, and so now uh, it's this moment that Jesus seemingly shifts his focus, he is now going to, uh, he'll still work with the religious leaders, but his main focus in this point in the story is going to now be to take those 12 disciples that he's been raising up and to now remind them that they're the future. Those probably high school-aged boys, with the exception of Peter, who is probably plus a little over 20. The rest of them are high school-aged boys, and Jesus is now going to dedicate his time to just those 12. Uh, he'll still talk to the religious leaders when they have questions, but it's by and large to those 12. He needs them to see what they're supposed to be. Now, if you were going to focus on, like if you've got your disciples and you realize, I gotta, I've got about one year left to give them everything I've got so that they can carry on the torch of this ministry, what would you do? Like, where would you take them? Um, I, I thought a lot about that as I was just putting this stuff together. Um, and uh, it's really interesting to me because I don't know that I would have done what Jesus does. Uh, in fact, I, I don't think I would have done what Jesus does, and yet it's brilliant. Uh, and so that's, that gets us into our story. Um, Jesus is gonna take them to a location. Uh, if you've been here for a little bit, we've explored this location before, um, but uh, in the context of Matthew, I want to teach you through some of this stuff again, if, if you, especially if you've not heard it. It's a wild story. It's a wild story. Um, but Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, 
when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. We'll just stop there for now. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus takes him to Caesarea Philippi. Here's the question I want us to hold as we uh, continue in the story. Why does Jesus take his disciples here? In this moment where he needs them to catch uh, like all the things, why does he take them here? Why would a good Jewish rabbi take a group of mostly high school-aged, maybe even middle school-aged boys to Caesarea Philippi? Okay, come with me in your imaginations, at least, uh, to uh, Caesarea Philippi. Imagine you're a disciple, and you, um, you're one of the 12. Okay, so you, you've got your 12 friends. You've been walking with Jesus now for about two years. Um, you've seen Jesus do some things. But now Jesus says, okay, now come follow me. Come follow me. And so you do. After all, this is your rabbi. Uh, and your, your rabbi is brilliant. And you knew that from the gates, right? Like you knew that there was something about your rabbi. He was different than all the other rabbis. And over the course of two years, you've watched your rabbi um, get cornered by the religious leaders and outsmart them every single time. He's like a jujitsu leader. <laughs> like he, every single time. Uh, you watched your rabbi perform these unbelievable teachings of the scriptures um, we've explored Ramez and uh, like just the way Jesus understood his scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, how Jesus set those scriptures loose. It's been amazing. You've heard other rabbis, um, but this guy, when he preaches, he, he's like mind-blowing stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, after he teaches the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds are astonished at what he knows. And he's your rabbi. Uh, you've seen your rabbi perform lots of miracles, um, turned water into wine. He's healed skin diseases. He has uh, cast out demons out of people. He has calmed the sea with just a few words. Raging storm, and he's calmed the sea with a few words. He's raised the dead. Like, this is no ordinary rabbi. You've been following him for a while, uh, and you have the sense that, yes, he's your teacher. Yes, he's your rabbi. But you have this sense that he's more than just that. And uh, Jesus says, follow me. And so you do. And you walk 27 miles, 27 miles by foot and by sandal. Um, Caesarea Philippi is up in the north at the base of the largest mountain known as Mount Hermon or Hermon, you could say. Hermon, Hermon. Uh, the disciples come from what is known as the religious triangle. These three cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. Uh, this is a 27-mile hike down trails like this. Or this, or this, <laughs> or sometimes even this. Um, by the way, uh, this is uh, Mount Arbel, and it's one of my favorite hikes in Israel, if you join. Um, tomorrow we're opening registration, by the way, so if you're interested at all, come talk to me. Um, but this is the trails, and Jesus hikes his disciples with sandals on, probably 27 miles north. Uh, down these little tiny narrow roads. At some point you realize you've left the comfort of your hometown. At some point you realize, okay, my family lived this simple life. They were farmers, they were stonemasons, they were fishermen, but they were relatively simple lives. Your life kind of revolved around uh, the Sabbath and it revolved around the synagogue and your life was kind of, you do your job and then you come home to your family and then you go to synagogue on Sabbath that was your life. 
Five of the 12 disciples come from one tiny little village known as Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a fishing town. Um, five of the disciples, Philip, Andrew, James, John, and Peter, come from Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, at the time of Jesus, we, based on excavations, we're not confident we found the actual Bethsaida yet. We, there's two kind of candidates for the city that archaeologists wrestle with. Um, but uh, based on both of those cities, we think that probably the city would have been no larger than 800 people total. So just think about like an 800-person city. This is like Borkula. Uh, Bethsaida would make uh, Borkulo look like New York City. You know Borkulo? Nothing good can come from Borkulo. Uh, no, Borkulo. So uh, Bethsaida is a tiny little town. I come from Borkulo. I was part of the Dandelion Festival. I walked to bowls of Borkulo, all those things. Um, Jesus says, come follow me. And so you do. You walk 27 miles. Uh, but the more you walk, the more you realize, okay, we're not back home anymore. Simple life is behind us. Because you know what the building project that's going on 27 miles north has been about. You know that right around the beginning of Jesus' life, there was a massive, a massive building project done by a guy named Philip. Let me show you the maps of the Herods again. Uh, so Herod the Great dies in about 4 BC, and his kingdom, the, king, the nation of Israel, is divided between his three sons. It's really not Herod Philip. It's Philip the Tetrarch, um, but he's one of the Herods. Uh, Antipas is in the Galilee region where Jesus grows up. Archelaus is down in the south. And then Philip is up in the north. Philip decides when he becomes king, he is going to look for the wealthiest city in his region. And he's going to declare that to be his capital. The city he lands on is a city known as Baneus. Um, it's kind of the, the Greek for pan, Paneus. Baneus. Baneus, uh, he decides, I'm going to make this my capital. And he renames the city. He renames the city after himself, Philip, and also grabs the name of the Caesar. At the time, uh, it was uh, Caesar Augustus had just died. He names it after the Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. And he gives it as a dedication. So essentially, what we know from Philip, we know a lot from history about Philip, but one of the things we know about Philip is that he, was, uh, he had a brown nose. Like, he, he was a brown noser to Caesar. He wanted to get in good with Caesar. Why does he choose here? Why Caesarea Philippi? Why this region way up here at the base of the mountain? Why does he choose here? What we know from history was there was a commercial enterprise that was happening in the city that was all centered around a massive festival to a Greco-Roman god who knew himself to be, well, who the people called Pan. You heard of Pan? It's Greco-Roman god known as Pan. Um, as you climb a hill, just put yourself in the shoes of these 12 kids. You climb the hill and you hear the music and the laughing and the dancing, and you hear it all as you make your way up the hill. And then as you crest the top of the hill and you look down, you see what every, you see it. For the first time, you see what worship of Pan is all about. Let me show you an image of Pan. Um, he's a goat god, uh, often showed playing the Pan flute. That's where we get the word Pan flute. Uh, often shown playing the flute. He's half goat, half man. He is the, the Greco-Roman god of wild partying. Uh, and Caesarea Philippi was the capital of Pan's headquarters. 
Um, Philip makes his capital the same as the capital of pan worship. Pan worship, um, because pan worship, there's people coming from all over the world to worship this guy. It was like a headquarters for this guy because people have always loved a good party. And so he chooses here. Um, And as a Jewish kid, you would have been warned about this place. You would have heard about this place, especially when Philip decides, I'm going to make, I'm going to join political power with this ugly religious power. You've heard about this place, but now you see it for yourself and you still can't believe your rabbi Jesus, this miracle worker, took you here. Jesus, you took us here. Um, Because at, at the center of Pan's worship, there was a worship festival Um, Once a year, this festival would attract the masses from all over the world. But the festival went on. It's kind of like Mardi Gras every day. The festival went on every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, let me walk you through a typical pan worship celebration. What would that look like? Uh, Let me show you a... There we go. Um, So it would begin in this white building. Begin in this white building, and you would go in. If you were a pan worshiper, you would go in and you would sit in the white building and you would wait and you would wait. You would wait for the spirit of pan to enter you. So you would say your chants and your prayers, and, but you would wait. Sometimes you would wait for minutes. Sometimes you would wait for hours. Sometimes you would wait for days for the spirit of pan to fill you. Well, how do you know when the spirit of pan comes into you? They said, well, you know. You know, if you sit there long enough, you will know that the spirit of Pan has entered you, that, the, that you have become enlightened. Now, did something really happen? Probably. Let me, let me walk you through probably why. Um, if you notice, uh, this building, it sits in the back of a cave. Now, uh, that cave, um, there is, we've noticed a crevice in the cave. Let me show you a picture of it today. Um, there's the cave. There is a crevice in the base of the cave. From that crevice, we've discovered two things. First, it used to be the source of a river. Um, there was a river. Now, an earthquake in the 19th century collapsed the roof of the cave. And so the river, um, let me show you the next pick. The river's kind of moved a little bit. Um, but initially, it came from the crack inside of the cave and came from the cave, a river. Uh, this river would join with another river and then yet another river. And together, they would form a single river known as the Jordan River, and the Jordan River has a basin that we refer to as the Sea of Galilee, and then from the Sea of Galilee, it comes back into a river. Jesus gets baptized in the south. It eventually, right next to where Jesus gets baptized, is a sea known as the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth. Um, But it starts up here. It starts with a gushing river. One of the main rivers is right here in Caesarea Philippi. Um, Now, we've discovered that. We've also discovered that not just was there a spring in the giant crevice, um, but we've also discovered there's something else in the crevice. Um, Archaeologists discovered that as they were excavating it, there is a slow leak of methane gas released from the crevice. Um, They've dealt with that, but there is a slow leak of methane gas that was released. So you would wait, and you would wait for the spirit of Pan to enter. How do you know when the spirit of Pan enters you? You'll know. Uh, and coming out, you get, like, coming out high on the gas. You would come out, and now you were said to have been filled with the spirit of Pan. This, this goat god who gave you life. Uh, they believed him to be the god of partying, but he gave you life. Uh, this is the god who gives you the river. Uh, in an ancient world, running water is central to everything. He gives you life. Now, that crevice, they believed, 
Where does the spirit come from? Well, it comes from the underworld, a place that the Greeks referred to as Hades, or Hades, you might say. Hades, the god of the underworld. Wild story there. So they call that crevice, uh, and really any crevice into the underworld, um, they refer to those as a gateway or a gate of Hades. The gates of Hades. Yeah, I know, right? Um, now, okay, so high on the gas. You're, you're high up on gas. Uh, they, you as a worshiper would leave that building, and uh, you need to somehow, let's go back. Do you have the diagram again? There's a bunch of images. Yeah, yeah. So you need to somehow, you need to say thank you to Pan for giving you the gift. Now, um, here's where things get X-rated, and I will, uh, it's hard to do it in church, so... We, we went there a little bit in Israel. We kind of, I gave a few more details and I, I read people's faces and realized I probably shouldn't do that in church. Um, so uh, let me give you the, I'll give you the PG-13 version of the X-rated event. But there'd be a parade. And again, the parade wasn't like an organized parade like you'd get in Byron Center or Granville. Um, it was just kind of wild partying in the streets. Um, but there'd be a parade and leading the parade, they would take a uh, six foot statue of a part of the male anatomy. Um, if you look up the god Pan, you'll often, never mind. Um, then uh, you, uh, you, there was women who would dance up in the niches. Uh, you can see them here um, in the excavation. There's several of them. Um, they, would have, they would place the, the, either statues of the gods or you would have uh, the harem of prostitutes. And you would party. And uh, there were things done with them. There were things done with goats, both men and women and goats. Uh, and the harem was there to help you. And all of this was your way of saying thank you to Pan for the gift of the, the spirit of Pan. Ugly stuff. Wild stuff. Um, the stomach-turning stuff. They referred to this festival. And this word stays in our English language to this day. They referred to this festival as pandemonium. Right? Uh, Pan plays the flute. Um, read the kind of Greco-Roman history. He always plays the flute. And what they would do is they, the priests would come out and they would play their little pan flutes. And every once in a while, they'd, they'd blow the flute with a shriek and all the people would scream. From that, we get the word panic. Look up the etymology of panic. Uh, panic means fear inspired by pan. We, get, we, we keep the word today. Pandemonium. Panic. All of this... Uh, connected to this goat god, Pan. Uh, to this day, Satan, when we depict the devil or Satan, you ever notice that Satan's always portrayed as a goat, right? He's got the, got the, the hooves and he's got the, the horns and he's got the tail. The Bible never talks about Satan as a goat. Satan's a serpent. Satan's a fallen angel. Why do all the earliest portrayals of Satan refer to Satan as, or like draw him as a goat, to which we keep to this day. Like, why does Satan come as a goat? Because when the first Christians thought of the most ugly thing they could think of, the worst of the worst, the most disgusting of the disgusting, they said, oh, that's Pan. Pan's as bad as it gets. And so they start drawing Satan to reflect this God Pan because that's the Antichrist. It's the opposite of what Jesus is like in the world. And you're a disciple, and Jesus takes you here. Can you imagine like that walk? Like I just imagine um, I've, I've led trips with like high school aged guys before and I, I can imagine the guy snickering behind being like, 
dude, when your mom finds out, you're so dead. <laughs> like, like I, I can't believe, and maybe even some trauma. Like, I can't, like, what, like, what's, like, we are so busted. Like, what, like, mom, she can't know we're here, right? Like, we've went to the Decapolis. That was bad, but this, this is bad. Now, let's pick up the story there. Jesus takes you here, and he says these words. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. He's just been beheaded, but some say you're him. Others say Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. So others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter, answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By the way, uh, Caesar declared himself to be the, the Son of the living God. Um, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates and the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why does Jesus take them here? Why does he use this language? Why does he talk about the gates of Hades? Why does he talk about that here? Perhaps. Perhaps it's because uh, the people at Caesarea Philippi, they said, oh, we'll, we'll, tell you, we'll show you the gates of Hades. That's what they called it. And Jesus says, I'm going to take my disciples here and the, to, the, to the gates of Hades, and the gates of Hades will not prevail on where I'm building my church. By the way, the church at this time is just those 12 guys. It's all there. It's all it is. That's the church at this point. I'm just those 12 guys, and the gates of Hades will not that will not win against what you're going to be doing. This also, by the way, um, uh, have you ever uh, asked the question, like, what, what rock is Jesus referring to when he says, on this rock I will build my church? Right? There's a giant debate in religious circles about what rock is Jesus referring to. Um, there's two main camps on which rock. Some, one camp will say, oh, the rock that Jesus is referring to when he says, on this rock I will build my church, that rock is Peter, the person. Peter, um, because Peter's the one who understands who Jesus is, he becomes, uh, this is the moment that's cited as the birth of the papal system. Peter's the first pope um, because of this moment. It's, an, it's interesting, right? Like, that's an interesting, and, and like, Peter, certainly, like, on these guys and on their belief, like, the church will be built. And so I understand where that logic comes from. Um, but that's kind of the, the Catholic worldview points to this position and says, well, Jesus here, when he says, on that rock, I'll build my church, that's like the birth of Catholicism. On the other end, uh, and this is more the Protestant side, uh, it's the Protestants say, what, what's the rock? Well, the rock is Peter's statement. The rock is what Peter says. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That statement of faith, that's the, the foundation of the church. Everything we do, Everything we're about, we can do lots of good work in the world, but if we lose sight of the rock of that statement that we're doing it because Jesus is the foundation, we've missed the point. So, so one side says, okay, it's, it's Peter is like the first pope, and it's on this kind of person passed down through lineage um, that Jesus is going to build the church. The other side says, it's the statement. I think there's merit to both. Um, maybe both. But let me offer you a third uh, potential um, at least maybe what they're thinking as they see this. Perhaps the rock Jesus was referring to was, uh, let me show you the image again, was this. Jesus, perhaps what Jesus is saying in this moment is, look down, you see that temple, you see those worshipers, you see the ugliness. Okay, look past the ugliness, look past the disgust for a moment. See the sadness. 
See the pain in the people down there who think they have to do this to keep the river flowing. See the pain in them. I want you to put my church there. Go to them, to the people who are so hurting and so confused that they will do unspeakable things with animals because they think that's what God requires. Go to them and bring the kingdom of God to them. I almost wonder if he's thinking back to the religious leaders got so caught up in, did they wash their hands? Like, no, you ha- if, if there are hurting people, hungry people, crowds of hungry people, that's what we're here to fix. Go to them. And by the way, um, the Gospel of Mark records the same story. And Mark adds an interesting detail. Let me read you the detail. Uh, Mark 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd a crowd to him along with his disciples. Now, when you read that Jesus calls the crowd, you have to ask the question, who's the crowd? Perhaps this group of worshipers of this God Pan? I mean, it is the center of the city. Jesus calls the crowd. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I just picture Jesus yelling it down to the crowds. And then I imagine these 12 guys like, Jesus, shh. Like there's only 12 of us or a lot more of them. And then I picture Jesus turning to his disciples and saying, if anyone is ashamed of me, And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes into his Father's glory with the the holy angels. What's he saying? You can't be ashamed of me. It's going to take courage to go to the ugliest places of the world and to find compassion even for them. It's going to take courage. You're going to have to be bold. Um, Do you... Do you have what it takes, Jesus says to these guys, to go to them? Now, um, catch this. Uh, This is the first time in the Bible that the word church is mentioned. It's never mentioned before this. It's the very first time in the Bible the word church. When Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, this is the first mention of church. Whatever Jesus says next will become the, uh, essentially the mission statement of the church. This is what we're here for. This is our job description. Um, On this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, um, how many of you have heard the passage interpreted this way? This is how I grew up hearing this passage interpreted. By by well-meaning religious people, but I think wrong still. You know, this passage gives me such assurance because the world is hard and the world is ugly. And Scripture tells us that Satan's like a roaring lion. But in the walls of the church, I'm safe. If I just kind of keep in the walls of the church, I'm okay. He can't get me. The bad can't get me. We're okay. And that just gives me such peace and such assurance that I am okay. Now, again, I know many good people have that interpretation. I just think it's wrong, Um, especially because, let me ask this question. Uh, Are gates offensive weapons or defensive structures? It'd be weird, right, if you went to war and you had one side picking up their gates and charging you with their gates. That's weird, right? Gates are defensive structures. 
According to Jesus, the the church isn't the one who should be hiding from the the bad of the world, the pain of the world. The the church isn't the one who's hiding. According to this story, it's, it's Satan who should be hiding from the church. Because wherever there's brokenness, wherever there's pain, wherever there are people who are hurting, our job is to go in and be representatives of the kingdom of God, to find the hurting, to find the sick, to to bring Jesus' healing and love there. Um, Jesus essentially called the church to be the ones who storm the gates of hell, wherever hell is, and to bring the love and light of of Jesus that our job is to go to them. Um, That's our job. What does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? Um, we, we talk a lot about it's important to know the text. It's really important to know the text, uh, to know the scriptures. Um, it's our playbook, right? Like if we don't internalize the scriptures, if we don't, uh, I love how the Jewish people will talk about the, the scriptures are sweet like honey on the comb. Um, the first lesson in school actually is to pull out a honeycomb and the kids will take their finger and lick it and be reminded that the, the word of God, the words of God are sweet like honey. So we've got to internalize the text. It's absolutely about internalizing the text. Um, it's, it's 100% a commitment to follow your rabbi wherever he goes. That's what it means to be a disciple. But I also think... What Jesus needs his disciples to see here is that to be his disciples is going to take courage. It's going to take a willingness to go to the places that are hard. Um, We've talked about this before, I think, not too long ago, but um, the word for disciple in English, to make it plural, we add an S, right? So to make disciple plural, you say, okay, singular disciple, uh, and then plural, disciples. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for disciple is the word talmid. To make the word talmid plural in Hebrew, you add not an S, it's not talmids, you add an I-M, talmidim. So disciple, disciples, talmid, talmidim. In Arabic, the word for disciple is the word talib. To make talib plural in Arabic, you don't add an S, you don't add an I-M. To make talib plural in Arabic, you add an A-N, Taliban, Taliban. Uh, it's estimated that in, um, in the 9-11 strikes, uh, it costs about $300,000 to pull off those events. $300,000 uh, to pull off the events of 9-11 um, for disciples of... Uh, not our God. What would happen if Christians got organized? What happens if we, um, what could we do if we looked not to like destroy the bad things of the world, but to actually redeem them, to go to them and love them? And like, what would happen if, if for $300,000, the Taliban can bring a lot of death and destruction and pain? What would happen if Christians actually got organized? I think Jesus takes his disciples on a 27 mile hike to the most sinful place he could hike in his day, to the ugliest place he could hike in his day. And I think Jesus says, I need you to bring my church here because Jesus understands is going to take a boldness and an organization to go. Um, I often, uh, so when we were uh, leading this last trip to Israel and uh, I led it with two friends and um, actually three friends and we were kind of working through who teaches what, where. And uh, this was the site that I had said to my friends, like, I, I would love to teach Caesarea Philippi. 
Um, because this site for me, the first time I put my foot on the, the, some of the ground that you saw in pictures um, was a site that like, all of a sudden things clicked. Things that before were theory or things that I sung about, um, but things that I, I, I prayed about and believed in, all of a sudden I saw it. Uh, in that moment, it felt like God had kind of lit a fire in my soul. Like, this is the mission. This is the mission. Um, Jesus, uh, I often think of my call um, as the, so actually the first time I was here was 13 years ago, and um, I remember then thinking, okay, that's what I'm supposed to give my life to. And I've often told the story that I, I often think of my call in ministry is a bit like uh, waking up a sleeping giant. I actually think the church in West Michigan is a sleeping giant. I think we have more power and potential uh, and influence. Y'all are really smart. Um, you all have a lot of, uh, you have connections. Like if the church in West Michigan were to be really serious, um, we could change the world in ways that I don't know that lots of other places would have the same kind of access or influence. I think we're, but we are a bit like a sleeping, like a sleeping giant. Um, a story I often tell around this is, um, imagine with me, that uh, you stumble upon a house and the house is caught on fire. And you look around and you realize that the fire is raging and you have a group of sleeping firemen, you have a, uh, a hose, and you have a bucket. What do you do? You could try to fill the bucket and continue to try to put out the fire yourself. And honestly, it would do some good, right, to take the, fill the bucket and kind of dump it on the fire and then run back to the bucket and dump it on the fire. But your impact is probably limited, what do you do? You could take the bucket, fill it with water, and instead of dumping it on the house that's caught on fire, you could take that same bucket, fill it with water, and you could dump it on the firemen, right? I think one of the calls of this church right now in West Michigan, our church, is to be the kinds of people who say, okay, the world around us, in many ways, we're eating each other alive, right? In many ways, the world around us is burning. What does it look like for the church of Jesus Christ to get serious, to be the ones who say, we're going to wake up the firemen? Not to, not to light more fires, but to be the ones who go into the world and say, how do we bring the love and the light of Jesus to the hardest spots? That's our mission. Jesus takes 12 disciples and he shows them this because I think he needs them to catch it. A P.S. P.S. to the story. Um, when we visited there uh, in May, so, there, so um, in May we come there and I had this whole plan, okay, we're going to walk down into the, into the mouth of the cave and we're going to talk in the cave a little bit because up until this time I, I was always able to do that. But when I went there in May, let me show you a picture. There was a fence around my hole. Uh, and so I couldn't go down there. So I was trying to figure out, like, what's going on? Why do they fence up this region? Um, are they just trying to preserve it? Like, is, 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 are things falling again? Like, what, what happened? I uh, found a, there was a tour guide there. His name is Yehuda. He's become a friend over the years. And he, uh, he's, he's an archaeologist. And so I found Yehuda, and I said, Yehuda, why, like, what's going on? Why is, why did they rope it off? Why did they block it off? And Yehuda, his eyes light up. And he said, because anytime you find a new archaeological discovery, Yehuda's eyes light up. And he said, oh. And he said, yeah, there was rain last year. And when the rain, it came down hard and it washed away some mud. And as the rain washed away the mud, they discovered in the 
bottom of, like right here in this area, right outside, the, they discovered a church, Byzantine church, a couple generations after Jesus. Apparently, a group of Christians, while pan worship was on its way down, it was on its way out, but a group of Christians decided to put their church right here. I find that encouraging. They took, they took it literally. P.S. Uh, P.S. number two. Um, P.P.S., I believe. Was that post-postscript? P.P.S. Uh, I sometimes like to think of the story, and I like to imagine I'm Peter in the story. Because um, if, you, if you follow the journey through the eyes of Peter, Peter's life is a series of ups and downs. I think there's a lie in our world that faith is up and to the right. Like once you say yes to Jesus, you're not allowed to screw up again. Don't you dare mess up. You tell your story of, I was this, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm this. But if you look at Peter's life, just think about the, like, the events surrounding this event. Peter uh, sees Jesus walking on water. Peter gets out of the boat. He has faith when no one else does. But then he sinks, and Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. It's up, and then it's down. Peter then walks to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says, well, who do people say that I am? And Peter's the one who first declares that, Jesus, you're the son of the living God. You're right, Peter. I mean, how does that feel if you hear Jesus say, you're right, you're right, Peter? Nobody else has understood this. He's up. Uh, but, by the way, um, here's what's true. They're going to kill me. <laughs> They're going to kill you. There's a cross with your name on it. He's down. Um, but then uh, Peter decides, you know what, Jesus, not you, not me. We'll fight. We'll take them. I believe he's up. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he's down. It's not how it's going to play out. You don't get to fight. It's up and it's down and it's up and it's down and it's up. I think that's how life actually is. There are moments where we feel really close to God, like our faith is rock solid. Like we sing the songs and it's like Jesus is speaking right to us. And then there are other moments where we're singing the same songs, the exact same words, and we're like, we feel nothing. It's like, why am I even here? Well, maybe the band's not on this week. Maybe they're not good this week. It's week after week. Like what's going on? Are there times where you say your prayers? Is this, maybe this is just me. There are times where I say my prayers and it feels as though me and God are in dialogue. And then there are times where I say my prayers and it feels like I'm talking to myself. Um, it feels like I'm uh, the mutterings of a madman. Like, what, what am I doing? What am I doing here? Um, faith often is not, I would say faith never is up and to the right. Faith is always an up and a down and an up and a down. What I love about this story is that Jesus understands this. Jesus does not require perfect faith. What Jesus wants in his disciples is not a perfect faith, but it's the kinds of people who are caught up in the scandal of grace. In fact, they can't fully see who Jesus is until they go through this journey. They cannot get it. Sometimes it's our failures and our disappointments that allow us to see what it is that needs to change. I cannot tell you how many people I know that I have to hit rock bottom before they can look up. The pain, I've got a friend who's in recovery and he'll often say, if the pain of the addiction is not worse than the pain of recovery, they'll never get sober. You have to let them hit a little bit harder. Often life is up and it's down. 
And so we, uh, one of the reasons I love celebrating baptism and I love doing it with you all is what we get to mark. Uh, for some people, we go into baptism and it's, we're marking this like top, right? Like God has been real to me and God has been alive in me and God's been present and I need to mark that moment. I wanna say, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm all in. Other people, um, we baptize and they're, at, they're desperate. They're desperate. Uh, they're, uh, my first year here, somebody said to me, he's like, yeah, I think, I'm, I think like Jesus is probably, I'm like 70% sure that Jesus is, is who he says he is. I'm not fully sure, but I'm like 70% sure. Like 30% of me still thinks I'm crazy and y'all are crazy, but I'm like 70% sure. Uh, and like his faith was here, but he had enough to take a step. Um, there was uh, one gentleman, um, good friend of mine, who he, that f- one of our years that we did baptism, um, he knew that this was a step, but this wasn't magic. So what he had lined up was, I need someone when I get baptized to take me out of here and drive me to recovery, where he spent three months at Guiding Light Mission. Um, I knew that I needed somebody to take me and drive me to recovery, which meant he was probably drunk when he did it. Can you baptize somebody who's drunk? These are the questions I have to wrestle with. Um, But he was probably, but what he understood about that moment was I'm saying yes to Jesus and I'm in. I'm going into the uncomfortable because I'm in. Um, The invitation we have is, for some of you, it's here. I wanna mark this moment and I would love to celebrate that moment with you. For others, it's here. It's low. You're in the middle of the ugly. And we're going to have an informational meeting right after. It's like 10 minutes-ish. Um, and we'll just meet up here. We won't, on the past, we would kind of share stories. And what I learned was some people's stories, like they're not, I don't want to put you in that uncomfortable spot right here. So we'll just meet here. I'll run through logistics of baptism. So like where to meet, where to go, kind of what to expect. And then we would love to follow up with baptism. Um, if you're comfortable and willing We'd love to like, meet with you one-on-one, um, myself or, or Abby, uh, and hear your story and um, pray with you and celebrate baptism with you eventually on the 21st. We want to invite you to it. But for all of us, the invitation is to wake up the firemen. I love this story. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Lord, um, you needed the disciples to see something. And I, uh, Lord, that's why you brought them there. And Lord, you brought us here because you need us to see something, Lord. I'm not sure what it is that we all need to see, but Lord, you do. And so whatever it is we need to see, whatever ugly truth we need to, to, to look in the mirror and see in ourselves, Lord, whatever, um, whatever space in our life that we've grown hopeless and you need us to see some hope again, Lord, whatever it is, um, we, ask, we open our hearts up to you this morning. We open our ears to you. Lord, we want to be your disciples. And Lord, as we think of, as we think of the world around us and all of the pain, the, the rates of addiction, the rates of suicide, uh, Lord, the rates of just people who are hurting, uh, Lord, we want to be your church to bring your good news to them. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. 
And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.